All right. I would say back to the book of Romans, because that's kind of where we are. But really, back to which doctrine are we studying currently? Not regeneration. Okay. Reprobation. The doctrine of reprobation. Okay. Yeah, the opposite of regeneration. All right. Reprobation. Okay. Now, I, I, I'm gonna, this is how we're going to do this, because I've got to try to put this back together. It's always those weird situations where we kind of finish in the middle of something, and it's like, okay, now how much do we have left to finish this? All right, so let's do this. We're in the book of Romans, and we looked in Romans chapter 8, and we studied six words, right? Everybody remember those six words? What are those six words? Foreknowledge. Predestination. Calling. Justification, glorification, and election. Okay, good. Yeah, I need yeah, have those memorized. Okay, and and when I we got done with the six the six words, I realized wait a minute, I should have added a seventh. But technically, I shouldn't have added a seventh. The reason I didn't add the reason I didn't add it is because the word reprobation doesn't actually appear in the text. So, but whenever you study election, the subject of reprobation always shows up. So, I'm going to remind you briefly what reprobation is. And then remember we took a detour? Because the subject of reprobation raises all kinds of questions in regards to God's sovereignty and how that works out in the world and all of the massive philosophical problems that brings up. I've stated it before, and let me state it again before we even get started. Is Christianity philosophically satisfying? No, it is not. Okay, Does it provide some answers that a non-Christian worldview cannot answer? Yes. But does it raise a, a, a thousand other questions that we really don't have good answers for? Yes. And to deny that makes you look foolish, makes you look dumb, and probably would probably be good infor- a good idea for you not to go into a philosophy class in any major university because you're going to end up going to look foolish. You've got to just realize some of the issues that arise. Okay, so let's go back through this. All right, reprobation. I'm going to quote from Grudem. All right, the doctrine of reprobation. We, when you understand election as God's sovereign choice of some people to be saved, then there is necessarily another aspect of that choice. Namely, God's sovereign decision to pass over others and not save them. This decision of God in eternity is called reprobation. All right? Reprobation, here's the definition, is the sovereign decision of God before creation to pass over some persons in sorrow, deciding not to save them and to punish them for their sins and hereby, thereby to manifest his justice. All right, now do you have a question? Double predestination? Well, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna get there. Okay, I don't want to go there now, but we'll get there. Okay, I, I won't forget that because Seth has brought that up as well. We'll definitely get to this, but for now, I just want you to have a basic understanding of what the doctrine of reprobation teaches. I've not even made an argument of whether affirming or denying it. I'm just making the case this is there, and you need to understand it. Okay, 
Remember, my job is to teach you every theology, every system of theology, every doctrine that's ever existed in the history of the church so that you will no longer be tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine because you say, you can't say anything to confuse me because my pastor does it on a regular basis, right? So my job is to throw everything at you so that when you hear something somewhere else, you're like, oh, that, that's your argument? My pastor makes better arguments for your side than you do, okay? Right? So my, that's my job, okay? So... I just want you to understand it. I'm not made a positive or a negative statement in regards to it. Correct? Does everybody agree with that? Okay. But I know that confuses people because I'll get emails and people are like, you said this. And I'm like, did you realize I wasn't saying it in agreement? <laughs> and they, people don't catch on. Okay. I'm like, you have to listen to everything I had to say? Because sometimes, I, because sometimes I'll think, make you think I'm going a certain direction and then all of a sudden at the end... And then you're like, wait, what just happened? Because if I, that's the way, it, because that takes you through the process, yes? Okay. No, no, I'm taking you through the process, right? It, it's, th- this is so common in preaching. Hey, today we're going to talk about this and it's false. Well, then immediately, what do you do? Okay, well, it's false. By not doing that, by taking you through the process, then you're like, well, maybe, could it be right? Well, I don't know. Well, that sounds good. Well, what about this? Well, what about that? What about this? So by the time we get to the end, you've walked through the process, so you have a good, what? Understanding. You have a good grasp of something about it. That, that's the reason I do it that way, whether, I know not everyone, not, not everyone understands what I'm doing, but that's why. So we, we set up what reprobation is. So summarize it. What's the doctrine of reprobation? Summarize it. God's sovereign decision not to save some. Election is God's sovereign decision to save some. Right? That's a simple way. I know it's an oversimplification, but that gives you the idea. Right? Sound good? All right, now, once we started working on reprobation, I then said, time out, right? And we took a detour. And I had everyone create a list. Remember that list? Took a piece of paper, divided in half. On one half, I put what? Exclude God. And then the other side, include God. I did not call it theism and atheism. All right? Why did I not, why did I not divide the paper between theism and atheism? Because no one is ever very consistent with their theism or their atheism. People philosophically go back and forth, right? Okay, because in many cases, you'll borrow, atheism will borrow from a theistic worldview in order to say that's evil or to condemn it. Well, evil or condemned it based off what? So, I wanted us to say that people look at life either from a theistic or atheistic point of view. Yes? And so, what are the benefits or what's the pros and cons of looking at it from that way? So, we looked at a lot of different factors, did we not? If we look at the, if we exclude God, that raises all kinds of philosophical issues and questions. If we include God, that still raises some philosophical or issues, right? I can go through all the problems. Typically in church, you find out all of the issues that arise from looking at the world from a excluding God point of view. Yes? And the church is good at doing that. Hey, if you exclude God, you can't answer this. What about this? What about this? What about that? And everybody's like, amen. Yeah, they should include God. But the minute we include God in our worldview, we have a million other problems that nobody in the church ever wants to talk about. Right? So what, what did I say? What's the most complicated, difficult verse in the entire Bible? Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. 
It's the most complicated, and it has nothing to do with evolution. It has to do with the fact that if an all-knowing, all-powerful God creates a world in which he knows exactly what's going to happen, that raises all kinds of philosophical questions, right? Why would he create a world where all these horrible things are going to take place? There is no easy answer. So either you have to say God didn't know or God doesn't have the power, which basically destroys God, right? Or you have to say somehow all of this is a part of what? His sovereignty, his plan, his decrees, right? His providence. Remember these terms that we have studied? So we started looking at some of the, and we dealt with all of that. I don't have time to go back through all of that. We spent an hour. So we started looking at all of these different factors, okay? Then we started talking about the decrees of God. Everybody remember that? Okay? And when we started talking, well, that's all about, those all are my notes on reprobation. Let's not go to those notes because we'll get to those later. Okay. We started talking about God's decrees, right? And we started talking about the order of God's decrees. Everybody remember that? Okay. And according to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the order of God's decrees are his eternal purpose, according to the counsel of his will, his will, whereby for his own glory, he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Now, that sounds good, right? Yes? But it doesn't sound good when you think about it, right? Hey, that sounds great until you start bringing in all of the horrible things that's ever happened in the history of humankind, and then you're like, wait a minute, how do these horrible things be a part of God's will or God's decree? That Why would God order, ordain or decree said horrible thing? Now, the reason I, I bring this discussion here is because I want you to realize, I, I, want, I hope everyone is caught on to this. You talk about reprobation, people get very emotional and get upset. And you can see why. Yes? Seth and Lydia right now, they see Lincoln and Levi, right? And their hope is what? Salvation for both. But if I tell you that God sovereignly may have may choose one and not the other, or may not choose either, they may not want to hear that. They can get very emotional. Remember when I got in trouble for studying the doctrine of election? Remember when I, I got called into the, the, the pastor's office? I'm a student in the Bible Institute, and I get hijacked because of, we have a conversation, I think it's Becca's first birthday or second birthday, okay, and there's video of me sitting there with all my books talking to the men in the Bible Institute, and I'm all excited because, you know, I'm talking doctrine theology. I didn't realize that that's a bad thing to do. You don't ever talk to Christians about, you know, it's this thing, they say never talk about religion and politics, never talk theology amongst Christians, right? Find you some atheist friends that you can talk theology, you have less trouble, okay? Yeah, it's sad, but it's true. Okay, all right, so I'm talking to them, and I think it's all a wonderful conversation. I don't even really say of whether I agree or disagree, but here's this doctrine we never talk about. Why do we never talk about it, right? It, that shouldn't be controversial, should it? Well, all of a sudden, everybody leaves the birthday party, I get the phone call. Hey, uh, we need to have a meeting, 
And whenever that, that pastor called and said, you need to have a meeting, it wasn't because he was coming to thank you for all of your great support. You knew you were in trouble, but I didn't really know what I was in trouble for. And of course, it's one of those things. He doesn't tell me what I'm in trouble for. So I go in blind. He goes in prepared, which is just complete, utter manipulation of the situation. That's just garbage, right? Because now he has the upper hand. Well, I get to the office. I walk in and guess who's there? The man who I talked to about the doctrine of election. And guess what I immediately get accused of being? A Calvinist. It's been brought to my attention, brother, you're a Calvinist. Whoa, I, wait, when, when, did I, when did I get this diagnosis? When did this just happen? I, I, I didn't realize that this occurred. So then we start talking, and everything they say demonstrates they don't have a clue what they're talking about. Now, I was stupid, right? Because I should have just said, well, you don't know. I should have just said, okay, whatever, right? But I, they start saying things that aren't, aren't correct. You know what I have a tendency to do? Wrong, 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 wrong. You're all wrong. Not wrong about Calvinism in the sense of Calvinism either being true or false. They were wrong in their understanding of Calvinism. That I always find myself in these arguments, right? I may not even believe a certain way, but someone will say something that's incorrect and I'm fighting their incorrect understanding and it immediately is assumed that I believe something I don't believe when all I'm really trying to correct is the wrong understanding. Do you know how weird that is to be in that situation? Like you're defending that. I, and I'll do that with all kinds of situations, right? I mean, remember the whole way I ended up in church was because I was at school and there's a guy walking around claiming to be a Satanist Telling all these Christian girls, you know, we sacrifice people at midnight, all this crazy stuff. And then I end up in the conversation going, that's not true, that's not true. That So I'm like defending the Christian girls, and I'm not even a Christian, because the Satanist is lying. And then, then, then the girl's like, would you like to come to our church? And I'm like, no, would you like to get out of my face and drop dead? And then the next thing you know, I go home and ah, there's chaos. And I'm like, you know what? I think I'll go to church, and then that's how I got, that's when I got saved. Right? So that was a real weird way. So I always find myself in these situations, and I like I'll find in arguments with all kinds of people, and they're like, "You're you're a Republican." I'm like, "I'm not a re- Republican, but you're saying things that are fraudulent." Oh, you're a liberal, communist, Marxist? No, because you're saying things. I'm always end up defending sides that I'm not even a part of because I can't stand fraudulent information. So I get into this argument. Everybody gets upset. Everybody gets emotional. It's going nowhere. And then finally, yeah, back to back, yeah, back, back to the church. Okay, back to back to the church office. Okay, finally, the pastor says, "Well, brother, what would you do if your daughter is not one of the elect?" Now he's going to use what kind of an argument now? Emotional. That's why we're talking about these other things, because that's what reprobation leads to. It leads to people getting very emotional. What I want you to see is the reprobation shouldn't cause those emotions. Genesis 1-1 should cause those emotions. Because the minute I'm like, wait a minute, God's going to create a world knowing that my daughter will not be saved? He didn't have to create a world where that would ever happen. He could intervene a million different ways. He created a world where a Hitler would arise. He didn't have to do that, or he could have 
stopped it. Genesis 1-1 is the problem. Let me state it again. I do. I will never understand why churches blow up when they get to Romans 8 and, every, and literally, literally church splits. I'm like, why are we not splitting over Genesis 1-1? Everybody reads Genesis 1 like, oh, isn't that a comforting verse? God is creator. Do you not realize all the problems that just caused? The problems start where? In Genesis. So does everybody understand that? Okay, that's why I wanted you to see that chart if you include God or exclude God. If you include God, now you have to go, wait a minute. So how does God's sovereignty, all of this work in regards to our salvation? And this brings up the order of God's decrees. And I just gave you kind of a definition of God's orders, his decrees. Basically, how do we understand his decrees? His eternal purpose, according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Right? This brings up all kinds of issues, yes? And there's been lots of attempts in church, ish, in church history to try to figure all of these out. What are some of the groups that have come forth to try to put forth their understanding? All right, let me go through some of them. You have Pelagian, semi-Pelagian, Arminian, supralapsarian, and infralapsarian. Right? Everybody knows all of those terms. Emeraldian, or Emeraldianism, right? Emeraldian, or Emeraldianism, and Arminian. And we're going to go through all of these. Which one did we cover last week? Pelagian. This view, so let's go through these quickly, all right? Everybody ready? Thinking caps on? This is what we're going to try to finish, and then we can go home, all right? Maybe. Okay, here we go. Because I'll probably think of something else to talk about. All right, here we go. <clears throat> Everybody ready? Let me take a drink of water before I lose my voice. All right, here we go. The Pelagian view is basically what kind of a view? A naturalistic view. What does that mean? excludes God. Now, I want you to hear this. A Pelagian view is a view that arises from inside, basically within Christianity, that excludes God from many of these questions. Why do they have to exclude God? Because if I include God, I end up with all the philosophical problems, right? If I include God in salvation, well then, what happens if Lincoln gets saved and Levi doesn't? Then whose fault? We, don't, we can't have that. So, so we want to look at it in a naturalistic way, and then who gets to do it? Lincoln or Levi? You see why? I want you to see the excluding of God is not something that just happens in atheism. It happens in theism all the time. We exclude God. It's common. Something bad happens. Whose fault? Somebody else, but not God. God is somehow not involved. We've got to exclude God from the horrible situation. We can't include God. If something good happens, we include God, right? It's, we play games, so I just want you to realize, and I understand why, because it makes us uncomfortable. But the uncomfortableness should start where? Genesis 1-1. Okay, I cannot stress that enough. 
Okay, if, if I, I, again, when I read Genesis 1-1, I read it like, no, no, don't do it. Don't do it. Right? It's like, no, don't go down in the basement. Don't go down there. Don't. Right? When you're watching like a horror movie, don't go down there. Well, when I read, when I read Genesis 1, it's like, don't, don't. It's going to be death. It's going to be destruction. It's going to be horrible. Because I know what happens, yes? Okay, but I don't know how other Christians read and go, isn't it a beautiful verse? Oh, this is such a cute little verse. I'm going to put it on my refrigerator. I'm like, that's horrific. I know that's not what you're supposed to, you usually don't come to church to hear that. Hey, Genesis 1-1 is horrific. It's horrific in many ways, yes? So the Pelagian view is a naturalistic view. As opposed, I think Sarah said it, to, to a supernaturalistic view. The primary issue between the naturalist and the supernatural may be summed up in one question. Does man save himself or does God save him? In its purity, Pelagianism offers that all the power exerted in saving man is native to man himself. Pure Pelagianism says, where does the power to be saved come from? Man. It is basically a salvation by works mentality that continues to show up in various forms today. Now, they would say it's not by works. But if it's you doing it, then you, I mean, it's, it's, put it this way. Are you called to repent and to believe? If you do that, then you're being saved by your work. If you're the one repenting and if you're the one believing. It's a salvation by works. Does that make sense? I got friends who are not reformed. Who are, no, I don't believe in salvation by works. And I always say, is, is it, are you commanded to repent? Are you commanded to believe? Well, well, well. And they try to, they try to backtrack. But the minute you say yes, did you do it? You're saved by your obedience to a command. That's salvation by works. <laughs> Does that make sense? Pelagianism denies that human nature has been corrupted by sin and hence maintains that every infant comes into the world in the same condition as Adam before the fall. Now, I think anyone who knows Lincoln and Levi will know that that is not true. Okay, okay, good. Okay. Like, everybody's like, well, Lincoln and Levi's kind of cute. Okay, that, that's irrelevant. Okay, they're depraved. Okay, amen? Anybody who's worked in the nursery, again, all the uh, Pelagius should have worked in a church nursery. And he would have changed his view. Because you see the selfishness immediately. You see, you see it. You know, do you have to teach a kid to lie? Do you have to teach a kid to be selfish? Why not? Because it's inside of them, all right? Now, uh, so there's, there's Pelagian. We covered all of that. Now, what's the next view? Semi-Pelagian. Did we cover that last week? All right, semi-Pelagianism is only a mild improvement over blatant Pelagianism. Like Pelagianism, it is a, what kind of view? Naturalistic view of salvation that has man saving himself. But in this case, what happens? It's naturalistic. Man saves himself, but according to semi-Pelagianism, what what do they add into it to make them different than full-blown Pelagianism? Man saves himself with God's help. They include God helping 
them. According to this view, man is not by nature totally depraved, but does suffer a physical and moral deterioration resulting from the fall. In this view, man has retained his natural free will and the ability to improve on the grace God has provided to all. So there's some deterioration, there is some sin, but what is maintained? Free will. Free will is maintained. Free will. This is the way it was described to me in the Independent Fundamental Baptist Church where I got in trouble for being a Calvinist. Okay, this is the way. This is how they would say. And their doctrinal statement, guess what the doctrinal statement said? We're totally depraved. See, just because you go to a church and the doctrinal statement says they're totally depraved, this, this really ticks me off. Many times they don't actually believe that. This is what they said. You're totally depraved, but inside of you is your will, and it's insulated, it is protected, right, from the depravity. Therefore, the will isn't impacted by the depravity. Well, the minute you say that, what did you just destroy? That's not total (laughs) depravity. How can you have a doctrinal statement that says total depravity when you just literally denied that we're totally depraved? Like, 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 the will is here and it's insulated. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. So the will is this. What about the heart? Because the heart is supposedly desperately wicked and deceitful above. What about the mind? Because I got the Bible talking about the corruption of the mind, the corruption of the heart, but somehow the mind and the heart are corrupted, but the will isn't? Do you see how utterly ridiculous that becomes? Right? It's like, I don't even know what that, that is, okay? So, in this view, man has retained his free will and the ability to improve on the grace God has provided to all. They say God has provided grace to everyone, right? And now you can improve on it. See, see, God's done some, he's done something, but now you've got to and then prove on it and then do. Yeah, if they don't get saved, it's because them. It's, it's not, still, still, they still remove God from, the, the, the God cannot be blamed. Do what? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, but, but at the same time, this is, that's very important, Bobby just brought up. At the same time, they would say that, yeah, if you, if you, don't get saved, it has nothing to do with God. But in a roundabout way, when you get saved, it has nothing to do with God. Like, they, you can't really give God the credit. Remember, that was the whole point. If we're, not, if we're saved by grace alone through faith alone, then who, what can we not boast about? Anything. But in these cases, you would boast about your salvation. In this case, if Lincoln and Levi grow up, and one gets saved and the other one doesn't, why not? Because one is What? Smarter than the other, better than the other, more sensitive than the other. Like if I look at my, well, my sister has made a profession of faith. She just, you know, got baptized recently. So hopefully, you know, everything moves in that direction. But let's say, uh, you know, if, if you have a sibling and you're saved and they're not saved, in a roundabout way, in this, in this kind of worldview, you would be like, they're just not smart enough. They, they just don't get it. I get it. Or, 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 well, then, then that leads to, from a parent standpoint, then you start blaming yourself, going, well, if I would have done this as a parent, if I would have done this. Uh, but 
That's the whole problem. That if the will is free, you don't have any control over it anyway. So Christians jump all over the place here, right? Even people who believe in free will then believe, well, I should have done better as a parent. Well, then that means you're trying to manipulate and control the will. And you said that God would never do that, so why would you do that? And then if you believe in a Pelagistic, naturalistic view, why do you pray for anyone's salvation? God can't do anything. Uh, and you'll, you know, you've got non-reformed friends. They're like, we need to pray for someone's salvation. And whenever I, when I'm asked by a non-reformed person to pray for their salvation, I, at work I would just look at them like, I'm not, why would I pray for them? You believe in free will. God can't do anything for them. And then they'd be like, no, 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 no. And I'm like, whoa, back up. If God jumps in and gets involved, he's overriding free will. You said God can't do that. You said God would never do that. <laughs> that's you. That's you. Like, well, I'm not asking anymore. But I'm like, why? I'm not going to pray for you. You, you, because you just completely. Your doctrine says God can't do anything. Now, if you want to become reformed, I will pray all day for their salvation because God's the one who's going to have to do it. Okay, but uh, that that usually didn't go over well. But because they don't even know what you're talking about, but but because they believe in a doctrine that they've never given any thought to, which is the problem of American Christianity. Okay. Like Pelagianism before it, semi-Pelagianism was condemned at what council and what year? No, that's Pelagianism. No, 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 no. Chalcedon's a hypostatic union. Come on, we got a pope here. A pope better know the councils of their own church. Okay, come on. No, no, no. It starts with an O. Oh, come on. There's only one. I'm a cry. Okay. No, no, not I'm a cry. Okay. O R A N G E. Okay. 529. Semi Pelagianism was condemned, and they condemned. They condemned it in 529, and what did they accept as the more accurate view? What would be the more accurate view? What would be the more accurate view over Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism? No, that wouldn't be more accurate. Well, Calvin, no, 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 can't say Calvin. Calvin, we're 500s. We're in the 500s. Calvin's a long ways away. Augustine, the Augustinian view, okay, the Augustinian view, okay, I know y'all knew that, okay, come on, okay, yeah, you're just testing me, okay, oh, I got the answers in front of me, so that's not a good, not a fair test, okay, all right, yeah, it's easy for me to say, all right, even though the sovereignty of God's grace and salvation was upheld by Augustinianism, to this point, compromises made at the Senate of Orange left semi-Pelagianism kind of, uh, it, it didn't destroy it enough. Is that a good way of saying it? It kind of left a little bit of power still there. And by, by this reality is, well, we see what happens. What dominates American Christianity today? Semi-Pelagianism, right? You can go to almost any church. You can go to any church anywhere around here. You're going to walk in and what that church is going to be. 
Semi-Pelagian, 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 semi You'll have your exceptions, but it's going to be semi-Pelagian. It, it kind of left it with enough life. It didn't really, they kind of made some compromises. All right? In fact, as this, as this article says, semi-Pelagianism was eventually revived and accepted by the church at large during the Middle Ages. So they knocked it down. They didn't kill it. Right? They didn't, they didn't end it. And guess what? There's nothing they could have done to end it. Why not? Why would I say that there is never a way to get rid of Pelagianism or semi-Pelagianism? Well, if you want to be very theological, I'm just going to be more practical. Because we cannot accept this idea of God taking care of this situation. We want, we can't, it just, see, it, it goes against our understanding of what we believe is fair, right, and just. We are trying to impose our understanding of fairness and what is right and just upon God. Oh, right. Now, that, that, that's, now, later on in church history, this is a good point. Later on in church history, that does become a concern. Well, if God does the saving, then we don't need to do anything. We don't need to do preaching. We don't do, do missionary work. That did lead to a lot of conflict, which then people on the other side would see. That's why we can't have. But you, remember, you don't, you don't believe in a doctrine or reject a doctrine based on how people use a doctrine. You can never base it off that, Okay. I always hate those arguments. Well, if you believe that, abuse of a doctrine does not determine if, some, if a doctrine is true or false. That just deals with the abuse of said doctrine. Right? All right, so there's Pelagian, semi-Pelagian. What would be next? Arminian view. All right. Now, according to... The, now, I'm going to... You know, this bothers me a little bit, the way this is written, but that's okay. They say biblical Christianity was revived... In the 16th century Protestant Reformation. Now, I do agree that there was some reviving of it, but you've got to be careful the way you say that because you almost sound like biblical Christianity ceased to exist. Right? And that, that becomes problematic in, the, in that case. But okay. However, it didn't take long after the Reformation for what to happen. What happened after the... It didn't take long once the Protestant Reformation started. Now, I'm going to say this from a positive way and a negative way. From a negative way, we know what was, what was the negative consequences of the Protestant Reformation. Just, did you have to listen to the church anymore? No. Did the Pope tell you what to believe? Magisterium tell you what to believe? Who came up with what to believe? You do. Now, people say, no, it, it reestablished the authority of Scripture. It, reest- it established the authority of the individual. I am always going to say that. I know Reformed people hate when I say that. The Reformation established the authority of the individual. Even though that was not Martin Luther's intent, when you destroy the authority of the church, then you become the authority, and you say, well, no, the Bible's the authority. No, your interpretation of the Bible becomes the authority. It's, and I, that's how it, we see that every day, right? I can sit here and preach anything I want from the Bible. And you can sit there and say, no, wrong, 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 wrong. Because I don't have any authority. And therefore, it's true, it's true, I don't, okay? I mean, I gave up that kind, when I was a young Christian, I was like, I'm supposed to have authority. Now I'm like, I was an idiot, okay? I should have never bought into that nonsense, right? Because it's just, it doesn't work, right? So, 
it, it revived the power of the individual. Now, there was good things about that and there was bad things about that. But of course, as soon as you revive the power of the individual, when individuals start talking about God's sovereignty and salvation, what else, what's coming with it? All kinds of fraudulent ideas because the individuals, and guess what? Do they come up with new fraudulent ideas? They come up with the old fraudulent ideas. So guess what shows back up in the 16th century? The old ideas, right? And this is how. It didn't take long after the Reformation for some of the same theological issues that Augustine faced to resurface. The sovereign grace of God versus the free will of man. This is not surprising since variations of free will, semi-Pelagianism, had become the acceptable position of both the Eastern and Roman church. That is hard for me to comprehend. Because St. Augustine is a doctor of the Catholic church. But yet they ended up embracing the semi-Pelagian view over the Augustinian view. Isn't that crazy? The heretic (laughs) wins. The heretic won. Even though Augustine is the one honored. Hey, we're going to honor Augustine today. But we really liked Pelagius. <laughs> okay, I, I, I like, I, they just need to remove Augustine as being a saint of the church and, and, and establish Pelagius as a saint of the church. I know that will make some Catholics mad, but that's, that's really the, the honesty. Okay? So then what happens in the 1600s? Well, a lot of things happened in the 1600s. So I, I guess that's a little unfair. A certain synod occurred in the 1600s that we've done a much study here in this church about. What? Oh, very good. The Synod of Dort. Anybody know the years? Okay, 1600s. Very good. 1618 to 1619. The Reformed churches of the day officially condemned what was perceived as the revived semi-Pelagianism of the Dutch Remonstrance in favor of a strict Calvinistic opposition Expressed in what confession? The Belgic Confession. Remember we, we, we studied that? Okay, I think I have, at one point, I tried to get everyone these books. See, is the Belgic in here? Yep, the Belgic Confession of Faith. Three forms of unity. Okay, yes. The Belgic Confession and the Canons of Dort, right, right here. So um, let me go through this again. 1618 to 1619, the Synod of Dort, they... Uh, they condemned what was perceived as a revived semi-Pelagianism of the Dutch remonstrance in favor of a strict Calvinistic position expressed in the Belgic Confession. Although officially rejected, this view continued to exist and grow in Protestant churches under the name of... So the semi-Pelagian view grows under what name now? Arminianism from, where does the name derive from? Jacob Arminius, 1560 to 1609, whose teaching formed the basis of the remonstrance position. So really, semi-Pelagianism never died. It just did what? Repackaged, changed its name, add a little variation, but it's still the same. What it, well, I, I want to make it very clear, though. 
All of these people and all of their issues should have started where? In Genesis 1-1. I cannot stress this. I know you're like, man, you keep saying that, but it, I just wish if church history would be so different if we all started our problems in Genesis 1-1. Because that's really, really, look, you can, you can get down the road and go, but, 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 okay, God did this and God did this, but in salvation, he didn't do anything that, it just, it, it doesn't matter. All of your problems still started in Genesis 1-1. Because he still created people knowing that they're not going to choose him, realize, and so therefore he created a world knowing how more people would go to hell than go to heaven. That, that's a, I don't care how you try to rework it, that's a problem, Yes? there's just no way to get around that. I don't know why Christians are afraid of just dealing with the reality here. Now, Arminianism, I want you to listen carefully to these words, sees itself as a fundamental improvement over the Pelagian and semi-Pelagian views. It sees itself. According to the Arminian view, would they say they're naturalistic? Absolutely not. Arminians would say, absolutely, we're not a naturalistic view. They would see them as being what kind of a view? What's the opposite of, yeah, spiritual or supernatural? Supernaturalistic. They would attribute the primary work of salvation to whom? God. The Arminian would say, God is the source of salvation. That sounds good, right? Sounds really good. Just a practical point. How, when it comes to any church and their doctrine of faith, how good is their, uh, are their, their, their confession of faith or their, their doctrinal statement? How, how good or how worthwhile is a doctrinal statement? It's only worth how much it shows up in the actual teaching and preaching of the church. Okay? I... You can go to church and you can say, where's your doctrinal statement? And they can give you the doctrinal statement. That doesn't mean anything. So don't read the doctrinal statement, but then what do you got to do? Listen to the preaching. Does it ever show up? You got these churches who have these great doctrinal statements, but you listen to the preaching. It never shows up in the preaching. Ever. It never shows up because they either just go these very practical, very simple sermons, three points. Never, if you bring in the doctrinal statement to the teaching of the church, then you're going to get into complicated theological issues and it, it should impact the pre, if it doesn't impact the preaching, then there's no point in even printing it out. No, and most people in many cases never even seen the doctrinal statement of the church. Never even seen one. Because they, 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 nobody wants to ever really deal with all of these kinds of issues, right? Now, they, so they attribute the work of salvation to God at all points. However, are you ready for this? It maintains that by the virtue of God's universal, and, they, and I'll, I'll give you this word. I want you to write this word down, right? Everybody ready? P-R-E- V-E-N-I-E-N-T. P-R-E-V-E-N-I-E-N-T. Anybody know what that is?
What word goes with prevenient? Prevenient grace. Does anybody know what that is? All right. Here we go. All right. Yeah, oh, okay. I, man, we're going to get into it. See, once you start, when you start unpacking this, it's like every, everything is another path down another long road that is going to get us far away from these things. But it's okay. This idea of prevenient grace. Okay? Now, if it's prevenient, what do you think that's re- referencing? What's the idea? Okay, preceding time or order. So it pre- this is a grace that precedes something. Okay, here's prevenient grace. You ready? Prevenient grace refers to the grace of God in person's life that precedes conversion or salvation. Now, why is this important? What does the Arminian want to maintain? They want to maintain that they're supernaturalistic and that who's involved in it? God. So they have this idea of prevenient grace saying that grace, that God's grace is precedes your conversion or your salvation, trying therefore to include God in it. Sounds good, doesn't it? Let me, I'll I'll get a little bit more here. The word prevenient considered an archaic term today. So now typically what it would be referred to is the grace that goes before or the grace that precedes. So sometimes it's called preventing grace. Preventing grace. All right, now you ready for this? Okay. In Arminianism, prevenient grace or the grace that goes before. You ready? It is a grace that offsets the effects of what? It's a grace that offsets the effects of something. The fall. Very good. It offsets the effects of the fall. And guess what it restores? Man's free will and enables every person to choose to come to Christ or not. Now you see how, you see how clever that is? Isn't that pretty smart? Hey, okay, we don't want to be naturalistic. So because we don't want to say God's not involved, so how is God involved? Well, provenient grace, he restores your free will, so therefore now, who then chooses to be saved? You do, but... God, but see, God, you can't say God wasn't involved. <laughs> you can't say God wasn't involved. He just restored your free will. Now the key is, if he, if he, if he corrects, now just think about it, if he corrects the effects of the fall, are you saying therefore before a person is saved, they're no longer depraved? You see now the questions that come around, wait a minute. So he, he restores my free will. Now if he restores your free will, okay, so let's say this is how it works. So, and I, 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 when does prevenient grace show up? That, that's a good question, right? So, Lincoln's born a sinner, okay? Then at some point, prevenient grace is given to him, and so now, even before he's saved, he now has the ability to do what? Stop sinning. This becomes, real, this becomes a really weird system, does it not? Now, may, to be fair, and within prevenient grace, 
There's two forms. There is called universal prevenient grace. And what does that mean? Everyone gets it. It's a new car for you and a new car. It's okay. It's not, it's not Oprah giving away cars, but you get the idea, right? It's, it's for everyone. And then what's the other view? There's the universal prevenient grace. What's the other view? Individualistic prevenient grace. This grace is only extended to those who come under the intelligent hearing of the gospel, not to every person. All right? So, in this case, how do you get it? So, Lincoln and Levi go to this church, so I would hope they're getting intelligent teaching, right? So, they would get prevenient grace. If you know some other kids who don't go to church, they don't get it. Now, you, you, you still get into some questions, right? So, wait a minute. Why do, why do they get to hear it and others don't? But because they get to hear it, they get prevenient grace. So, at this point, because Lincoln and Levi has been taught, what should they have now? Prevenient grace, so they have what? A free will, and therefore they're no longer bound by what? Their depravity. So that means Lincoln and Levi, you now have a responsibility of being perfect for the rest of your life, okay? So, and I don't think that's going to work, does it? Okay? The prevenient grace would be universal. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Hey, we got to, but it would just, not just to preach to get people saved, but preach so that people will have prevenient grace so that they can be saved. So you're, you're pre- on you, right. So then it could argue if your kid doesn't get saved, well, maybe you didn't teach in the right way so they didn't have prevenient grace. Still like a, a weird system. Like, hey, hey guys, I want to save everyone, but I can't give them prevenient grace. God can't do it. You see, this really doesn't fix the problem, right? Because God, could God just give everyone prevenient grace? Because clearly it's available, but I'm only going to give it if you preach to them. If you preach to them, then they get prevenient grace. But doesn't the Bible also seem to indicate that there's times that the preaching of God's word actually hardens people? Well, then how do you, how do you work that? Remember, the idea, why did he give a parable? He gave parables in order to keep some people from seeing. Well, wait, how does that work with prevenient grace? Do you only preach certain verses? Okay. Well, then God, yeah, well, then God hardened. I mean, like, you, yeah, you, this raises, this doesn't fix the problem. Okay, now, I just want to make sure, let's just, I'm going to take a little detour again. I, I know we're getting so far from reprobation, but that's okay. These, these are all important issues, okay? Now, I just want you to think Roman Catholicism for a second. Right? Roman Catholicism. Now, I really could unpack this one, but I really want you to think about this one. All right, you ready? In Romanism, or in the Roman Catholic Church, prevenient grace is an assisting grace which aids people who choose to cooperate with justifying themselves. And you can read about this at the Council of Trent. So prevenient grace really shows up in, because, again, what did the Roman Catholic Church embrace? Semi-Pelagianism. But they would never say that they're naturalistic. So obviously, then you need a little bit of prevenient grace thrown in. Does that make sense? Oh, man, we're at at 12.15. We never have enough time. Never. Why not? Okay. 
All right. Um, I'm just going to read this paragraph and we'll have to end. Okay, everybody ready? So Arminianism sees itself as a fundamental improvement over the Pelagian and semi-Pelagian view and that it is supernaturalistic, attributing the primary work of salvation to God at all points. However, it maintains that by virtue of God's universal prevenient grace, all men have a free will and the ability to savingly respond to God. It also maintains that predestination is based on God's divine foreknowledge where foreknowledge is erroneously equated with foresight. All right, so in the Arminian view, this is the way it works. All right, okay. Here's God. He looks down through time. He sees that Bobby's going to be given prevenient grace. Boom, Bobby gets prevenient grace. And that God's going to choose God. So then God chooses Bobby. So then ultimately, who did the choosing? Bobby. Who did the electing? Bobby. So who's actually the... So Bobby could literally call God Bobby's elect. Now, Arminians lose it when I say that, but I don't care. That's what it is, right? Because if God is the one doing the election, then Bobby is God's elect. But if Bobby's the one doing the electing, and God is simply choosing Bobby because Bobby chose him, which makes absolute... Why would God need to choose Bobby if Bobby's the one going to choose him? It makes no sense, right? So then Bobby technically would be the one doing what? Electing God which the Bible never refers to God as our elect. Okay, so, now, let's go. What, what are the views we've looked at? Plagianism, semi-Pelagianism, Arminianism. Two are very naturalistic. One tries to be supernaturalistic by throwing in which idea? Prevenient grace. Does any of them really resolve some of the bigger issues? No, they don't. Let me make it, let's just make it very clear. Where do I, where do the problems begin? All right. If you magically come up with a way to say, okay, we have free will, right? If you magically come up with a, a, a free will idea, well, then why would God create a world where he's going to ensure that you get a free will that he knows is going to be utilized to choose against him and you're going to spend an eternity in hell? Now, what they say is, well, because God would never do anything different. You can try to make all the excuses in the world, but does that not seem messed up that God would create a world ensuring that you have a free will that he knows is going to be used to rebel against him that's going to ensure you spend an eternity in hell? Well, he gave us free will, so it's not his fault. Who's the one who gave you the free will? God, knowing that you're going to do what? Think of it this way. If I load a gun, Put bullets in it. Put a bullet in the chamber. Walk over, hand it to Lincoln, and walk away, and then Lincoln shoots himself. Who's going to get in trouble? Isn't that roundabout way, free will, a loaded gun? Oh, I know that's that's going to be a that's going to be a sound bite on the internet. Okay, that's going to be a sound bite on the internet. Okay, we, we may want to just delete this now. Okay, that that okay. People are like writing that down right now. Free will is a loaded gun. It's going to have my name. I'm going to be on some quote site. Okay, All right, that's 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 not going to be the one I want to be known for. Okay, but it is. It's a loaded gun, and I know the potential of what we already know. The Bible tells us the way to salvation is. 
So I know that I'm giving free will and that loaded gun is going to go off and lead many people to hell. You can come up with all the systems in the world to say, well, see, God's not responsible. God, God's responsible because he created the world knowing it was going to happen. They said, but he didn't want it to happen. So you're saying that God created a world where things are going to happen that he didn't want to happen? But he knows it's going to happen? And he can just avoid it? from ha- so, so God can't even get his own will done? I know we're not supposed to talk about any of these issues in church. I know, I know this is how like, we're not supposed to do this. But you, ha- you have to talk about them. Right? You can't just ignore this stuff. Rep- I'll make it clear. Exactly. It's not even about free will. It's the fact that God knew exactly what was going to happen before he created the world. And you can't get God off the hook no matter how much you try. You can come up with prevenient grace. You can come up with all these little systems and like, see, I don't need to be reformed. I believe in prevenient grace and so God's involved in salvation. Give me a break. You're still making you responsible for it, but even if you try to make you responsible for it, God's still the one responsible for creating the entire system in the first place. I don't, I don't, I don't preach this because I like it. I preach it because there's no other way around it. My problems have always been Genesis 1.1. I've always struggled with that verse. It makes no sense to me. But it's not supposed to make sense to me, right? Because I'm not God. I just know he creates, he had the power, he had the knowledge, and this is what we have. So somehow it's a part of his sovereign decree, will, and providence. Do I understand it? Do I like it? Does it matter? Again, the be- I- I'll just say it again. Some people want to reject Christianity because they don't like it. But it's just like walking into a doctor and they'd come in and say, here's your test results. You've, you've got terminal cancer. Well, I don't like it. Do doctors say, okay, I've got to try to prove this to you. I've got to prove this to you. No, like, no, this, it's, I don't believe it. Look, you don't believe it. Does it change the fact that you have cancer? Your belief in it doesn't change it. <clears throat> That's the only way I can understand it. I, I look at Christianity, I'm like, whoa, I don't, I don't like that, I don't like that. It doesn't matter whether I like it. Is it true? And if I believe it to be true, then I'm bound by it, whether I like it or don't like it. And look, anyone who believes in Christianity, it condemns our very actions, does it not? I've been condemned plenty of time by the very Christianity I profess. There would be times it would be better for me to just reject it, and then I'm like, well, I'm not condemned. But even if I feel not condemned, I'm still condemned if it's true. Does that make sense? All right, any questions about prevenient grace? I didn't realize we were going to go there, but that's okay. Now, now you know what prevenient grace is, yes? And you know it's very much likened to Arminianism. So a lot of times when Arminians try to argue with you, and they try to make this kind of argument for a spiritual kind of, they're, they're talking prevenient grace, whether they understand it, what it is or not. A lot of your Arminian friends have never heard, know, know what prevenient grace is, but they, they, they borrow from that concept, okay? Which really comes from Roman Catholicism in a lot of ways, but... You know, we, we, could, we can talk about that, but okay. All right, we'll stop right there. Lord God, we come before you this afternoon. Lord, once again, we are confronted with truths that are hard to understand. We are confronted with church history 
where people have attempted everything in their power to get around some of these hard truths or try to explain them away. Lord, I just pray that we just continue to try to understand the truth, whether we like it or not, and not try to explain it away, but just accept it, whether we even understand it or even if we can explain it. Just give us the ability and the desire to think and talk about these things the rest of this week and meditate on them, and then you bring the benefit from it that you so choose. We ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said.